Very special thank you to the Seltzer family for sponsoring tonight's cheer in honor of Rafua Shalema to Ayelet Bat Leia. So thank you so much, and this should serve as, as a help for Rafua Shalema. I want to start off by reciting a poem. The author of this poem is unknown, but the first time I saw it, I made sure to save it on one of my files because I thought it was profound. From the moment you hold your baby in your arms, you will never be the same. You might long for the person you were before when you have freedom and time and nothing in particular to worry about. You will know tiredness, tiredness like you've never known it before. And days will run into days that are the exact same, full of feedings and burping. Nappy changes in crying, whining and fighting, naps or lack of naps. It might seem like a never-ending cycle. But don't forget, there is a last time for everything. There will come a time when you will feed your baby for the very last time. They will fall asleep on you after a long day, and it will be the last time you ever hold your sleeping child. One day, you will carry them on your hip, then set them down, and never pick them up that way again. You will scrub their hair in the bath one night, and from that day on, they will want to bathe alone. They will hold your hand to cross the road, then never reach forward again. They will creep into your room at midnight for cuddles, and it will be the last night you ever wake up to this. One afternoon you will sing the wheels on the bus and do all the actions, then never sing them that song again. They will kiss you goodbye at the school gate. The next day they will ask to walk to the gate alone. You will read a final bedtime story and wipe your last dirty face. They will run to you with arms raised for the very last time. The thing is, you won't even know it's the last time until there are no more times. And even then, it will take you a while to realize. So while you are living in these times, remember, there are only so many of them. And when they are gone, you will yearn for just one more day of them for one last time. So what I think ends up happening is that we get so into the routine of life, and when things are hectic, we become almost intoxicated by everything that's going on around us, everything I have to be doing, all of the chores, all of my responsibilities. And then we lose focus in the moment, and years go by, and we think to ourselves, wow, I haven't had a little baby run to me with open arms in a while. And I'm never going to have that again. I made a quick calculation. How many Shabbosim will we have with a child from 0 to 18 years old? How many weekends do you have altogether until they're out of the house? About 940. It's not that many. It's not that many. By the time the kid is 5, 6 years old, you've been through hundreds of Shabbosim together. How many Pesach Sedorim will you have? That doesn't require deep math. <laughs> About 18. 18 Sedorim, that's nothing. That's nothing. And you think about the first few years 
of the child's life, they're not really conscious, they're not fully there. How many loose teeth does a child have to share with you, to show you, to get excited over, to, to play games about whether or not you want to pull them out or take a bite of the apple? Twenty. Twenty loose teeth, hopefully not more than that. So we try to capture the moments, and Baruch Hashem, we have phones nowadays that are very sophisticated. We could take wonderful pictures with millions of, of whatever they are. The problem is that pictures capture memories, but pictures do not capture life. We want to capture life. Sometimes pictures take away from capturing life. So we have this awesome task that a Kaddish Baruch Hu has given us, and this is a, a, it's a difficult shear because on one hand, Baruch Hashem, it's a very diverse crowd, and some of you do not have children yet, and Mitzvah Hashem, this should be good for the future. Some of you have been there, done that, and this could be relevant for grandchildren. And for many of you, this is happening right now. We have the struggles of life with little ones or bigger ones, Teenagers, by the way, are a whole separate discussion, and I know nothing about them, <laughs> and I never will. <sighs> now, the strange thing with parenting is that it wasn't really spoken about that much at all until the 1900s. It was just a given. You, you do your thing in life. You eat, you breathe, you procreate, you have to take care of the kids somehow, some way, and you move on. In the 1900s, historically, when families were getting smaller, there was more of the, the, the leisure to focus on, hey, maybe there are ways of doing this that are more productive and more healthy, and there are ways that we should probably stay away from. So you start having books and studies and essays come out of the 1920s. A fellow by the name of John Watson portrayed children as human machines, whose behavior could be programmed by maternal technicians. How about that title, mommy? <laughs> A maternal technician. Watson chided mothers for their indulgence, warned about the dangers of too much mother love, and prescribed strictly regimented feeding schedules for infants. And this was very influential in the 1920s and the 1930s. However, research on war orphans and institutionalized children during the 1940s and 50s dramatically changed our view of what kids need in their younger years. And that led to research that was basically promoting as much love, as much affection as possible. And working mothers were now viewed in a very negative light. Unless you were a full-time, stay-home mother, there was something wrong with you. You were neglecting your child. So we've been in different phases and we've heard different things throughout the decades and we continue to hear different advice. Baruch Hashem, we have the Torah. And we know when it comes to any area of human interaction, we have the, the ancient and eternal wisdom of the Torah that guides us and it gives us the klolim. It gives us the basic principles. You will not find a Gemara that directly speaks about how do you put your two-and-a-half-year-old child to sleep when she keeps on screaming? And those are long and complicated discussions. But at least we have the guiding principles. I think oftentimes when it comes to parenting, we're so focused on containment, just trying to keep them 
doing what they need to do and we forget about the goal. Is there something we're striving for? Are we trying to accomplish something in a proactive way? Or is it just keeping them from destroying the, the, their surroundings and their siblings? I think the, the example would be, if you're trying to teach a kid how to play basketball, and all you tell him is, behind this line, that's, that counts for three points. Anything else is two points. Uh, over here, you go out of bounds. And you tell him all the rules and restrictions and limitations of the game, but you never teach him the love for the game. You never, you never show him old videos of some of the greats and, and practice with him how to make a layup and how to use your left hand. It's all about the things you can't do. When it, when it comes to parenting, there's a lot of that. Because we're just trying to have some semblance of Seder, some, some sanity in life, but we forget about the goal. So what is our goal? What is the goal of parenting as, as Jewish parents? So it's very different than the goal we find in secular culture. We've quoted this before in a different context, when we spoke about love and the relationship between couples. But again, I think the classic source that gives us a good insight into the secular world is Sleeping Beauty. In the beginning of the book, we have the blessings from the good three fairies, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. And the first fairy, Flora, comes along and she gives the princess the gift of beauty. And then Fauna comes along and she gives her the gift of song. Or we say nowadays, I want you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I want you to be happy and successful. What do we want as Jewish parents? So I think the bracha that Jewish mothers say Friday night is probably the most telling. We turn to Hashem and say, please allow us to raise children and grandchildren. We don't mention anything about beauty or song, but instead we say, who are wise and who understand themselves and the world around them. Ohavei Hashem, who have a love of Hashem, Yirei Lakim, who have an awe, who have an awareness of God. Anshe Emes, people of truth, living life with integrity. Zerah Kodesh, people striving for Kedusha, for sanctity, something that's totally lost from our world. Bahashem Devekim, we daven, they should be davak, they should cling to you, Hashem. Umeirem Olam, and we're shooting high. They should bring light to the world. The Torah of Masim Tovim through their Torah and their mitzvos, and everything they do in their Avodas Hashem, they should bring light to the world. So it's not about being healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's about being productive in a spiritual sense, having a meaningful and purposeful existence. So the topic of tonight's share is purposeful parenting. Not just doing it, not just containing them, but having a purpose, having a goal. And that goal is none other than Me'irim Olam, the Torah of Masim Tovim, bring light to the world with your spirituality, with your Devekis, with Hashem. So what's our motivation? With any lofty goal, you have to have a pretty strong motivation. What's pushing me to do this? So one could argue... There are many, uh, many selfish reasons 
that I want to have good children. Uh, there's an amazing Rabbeinu Yonah where he tells us that at Har Sinai, women were spoken to first. Why did Hashem choose to speak to the women before speaking to the men? So the Rabbeinu Yonah explains, because we know that Yadus, Judaism, is really dependent on the Jewish mothers. They are the ones who are looking after the children with that sense of responsibility, and they're the ones who have a yearning desire for their kids to be osek b'torah. And they have compassion upon them when they come home from school, and they're the ones that gives them cookies and milk and hugs and kisses. And they teach them what it means to have yiras chait, to have fear of sin. The mothers are the akeras abayas, they're the pillar of the home. V'nimsa l'fizeh, says the Rebbe it comes out according to this. Hanoshim hatsinuos misalvos hator v'hayira. The continuity of Torah, that is totally dependent upon the Jewish mommy. Keeping things together, bringing the children in, giving them that sense of love, ava and yira for Torah and Hashem. He goes on to say, and when they leave this world, meaning when the mothers leave this world, and they have children who are still here, being osek in Torah and mitzvos, adding more light into the world, that is a constant aliyah for the father, of course, but even more so for the mother, because in a sense, they're the direct product of mommy. So that's a good motivation. I know that once I leave this, this reality, I can no longer grow. That's the one thing that this world has that the next world does not. The ability to push myself higher and closer to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Once I leave this world, I'm stagnant. My only hope is my children. And if I do a good job now, and I set them on the right path and the right derech, so I'll have that constant aliyah through my, through my children's mitzvos. That's a good motivation, perhaps. The Chafetz Chaim says something very similar. He says, we find sometimes a son or a daughter will spend a ton of money on a beautiful matseva and a gravestone and have it etched in gold and have it carved out with flowers and they think they're bringing nachas ruach, they think they're making their parents happy. But in reality, says the Chafetz Chaim, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of effort, and it's a waste of money. What should they do instead? Here's a suggestion. Instead, they should take that money, obviously you have to have a matseva, but make it simple. Take the rest of the money and buy a shas, buy, buy a Talmud, and put it in the base medrash, and write on the cover inside of it that this is lezecher nishmas, my father, lezecher nishmas, my mother. Or he says, make a gemach. Be able to lend money to people who need money without interest. And the gemach should be in the schos of my father and mother. And that every time you give someone a loan for $10 or for $10,000, you're uplifting their neshamas through that mitzvah. So perhaps we would say, my motivation here in this lofty task of raising children who are davuk ba'ashem is that they'll be there for me once I'm no longer here. However, if that's your motivation, you will fail miserably in raising children. Why is that the case? 
If I'm looking out about my nitzchis, about my eternity, what they could do for me when I'm no longer here, what that really means is my drive in being a good parent is, is selfish. I want this for myself. Then you will fail. I had a conversation a few years ago with a mother who was so distraught. A really, really sincere person. And after many years of struggling with her oldest son, trying all sorts of things and spending a ton of money just to get him inspired, to get him into yeshiva, to get him into learning, getting tutors on the side to try to keep him up with what was happening in school. It got to the point where he was no longer wearing a yarmulke in public. Sounds like it was already a year or two that at home he never wore a yarmulke, but now he came to the point where he never wore one in public. And I was speaking to her and she said, what are people going to say? What are they going to think now? And I said to her in a loving but firm way, if that's our perspective, we have no hope whatsoever. If it's about what are they going to say, how does it make me look, he's gone. You have no chance. It can't be about us. And it's so hard for it not to be about us. But if it's about us, we will not succeed. There's a beautiful story that was told by Ramosha Shapiro. Ramosha Shapiro had a nephew living in Yerushalayim. He was a young man with, with many children. And uh, Ramosha Shapiro went to his house and he was there schmoozing with him and they were having a nice time. And throughout all of the conversation, the kids were running around and making ruckus and a lot of noise. But he saw that his nephew was just totally calm, cool, and collected, never getting mad, never getting upset. So he said to him, wow, it's an amazing thing. How will your children ever repay you for what you're doing for them? And his nephew said, you know what? By giving me a measure of nitzchias that I could live forever by carrying my name on, that's what they could do for me. So Moshe Shapir wasn't sure about that answer. He went to the Briskarov, and he asked the Briskarov, what, what, what do you say about this answer, hashkafically? Briskarov said, Korov la'apikorsis, it's bordering on heresy. We don't need anything from our children. We have no right to take from our children. They are not our nachas machine, and they are not our nitzchias. Our nitzchias will be whatever it will be, based on our our struggles, our trying, our, our pushing, but we can't look to our children for any selfish motivation in this world or the next world. What's our motivation then? It says in the beginning of Parshas Noach, Eila todos Noach, Noach ish tzadik, tamim haya bederosav, eselokim ishalich Noach. These are the generations of Noach, and then the Torah interrupts the statement and says, Noach ish tzaddik. By the way, you should know, Noach was a righteous man. He was totally pure in his time. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu walked with Noach. And then it goes on to say about his three sons. So the famous question that Rashi is bothered by is, why is the Torah interrupting itself? Ela told us Noach, these are his children, just tell me their names. Says Rashi, the Torah is teaching us a very crucial lesson for all parents. 
What defines you, what, what creates your Hatzlacha, your success in this world, is not your children. The Iker Toldos, the main thing that you'll have to be proud of, La'acher Me'ev Esrim, is the ability to look back and say, I tried my best in my Torah learning, in my mitzvos. I tried my best being a father, being a mother. Of course we all make mistakes, but I did a good job. That defines who you are forever, regardless of how your children turn out. We do not define ourselves based on our kids. It's a breakthrough concept. And it's so hard for, for us Jewish parents to, to really take that message home. But it's so important. We have to try hard. We plant the seed. The, the word for descendants in Hebrew is zera. These are your seeds. You plant them in the ground and you do everything you possibly can to give them enough sunlight and water and the proper soil and you daven. But it's going to grow how it's going to grow. It is what it is. Your child has Bahira, they have free will, and what they do with their life does not define whether or not I was an Evan Hashem. Yaakov Avinu, when he was having his reunion with Esav, and Esav said, please travel with me, we'll all go together as one big caravan. So Yaakov said back to Esav, I can't, because I have all of the sheep and I have my children who are young, Right, the term he uses here, the children are young and they're fragile, they're frail, I can't keep up with you. And the Svorno comes along and he tells us what was Yaakov really telling Esav? I have this responsibility. You see, I have this family. I have all these kids. I have to take care of them. It's my responsibility and that's why I don't want them to die. And it's a very strange thing to say. If anything, Yaakov should have been telling Esav, because I love these children to pieces, it would destroy me for the rest of my life if anything would happen to my precious kinder because I, I was going too quickly and I was forcing them along. Why is he talking about responsibility? It makes the whole thing sound like a business deal. These are your kids for crying out loud. But the idea is, is that more than anything, even more than love, our motivation is, this is my responsibility. Whether or not it feels good right now, whether or not I'm in the mood, whether or not I had a terrible day and therefore it's so easy to just lose it with the kids because life is crumbling down upon me. Forget love. Forget compassion. It's my achrayas, it's my responsibility. So that's our motivation. We have our goal, and we have our motivation. It's not about us here, it's not about us there. This is my job in this world. I have to be a good parent. So oftentimes, the, uh, the Pasuk in Mishle is mistranslated. Shlomo HaMelech writes, Chanoch Lenar Al Pidarko. And in Queens, there's an old conservative synagogue that it has that Pusik on the wall. And the English translation is, train thy lad according to his way. So what word is, is really wrong? Thy. No. Train. 
It was translating the verse Chanoch as train. Training is for dogs. Training is for elephants or tigers or zebras or lions. But training is not the real definition of being machanech, of educating a child. I have here from the Daily Treat the seven most important dog training skills. And I just quoted two here for those dog lovers. How do you make your dog come? So to start off, you have him on a leash in a quiet area. And then you say enthusiastically come, and then you give the command only once, and if he does so, you say yes! And that's how you start training the dog to come. How do you train the dog to sit? Right? You hold a treat in front of her nose, and then raise it slowly towards her back until she sits down automatically, and then once you're making her sit down, you do it over and over again, and eventually, when she hears the word sit, and she sees you do this, she sits down. So training works for dogs. However, training does not work for people, and sometimes it backfires greatly. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter once said that he was surprised looking at the, uh, the Cossacks. They were the elite troops in Europe, and they were in the army for 30 years. And they were highly disciplined, they were energetic, they were productive, they were up at 5.30 every morning. They did a whole lot. They were in great shape. But as soon as their 30 years were over, what did most of them do with their lives? They became accountants. Not really. They did absolutely nothing. They were drinking. They were just lounging. They were just chilling to the point where they eventually died just because they were so lethargic. So what happened? They were training so well for 30 years of their life. You would think after doing it so long, it becomes part of you. We have this concept, the hashkafa of chitzonius mares haponimius. What we do should influence the way we act and the way we feel. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said that they never identified with the values. They didn't have the understanding behind what they were doing. They were forced to do something for 30 years, but that didn't transform them because there wasn't chinuch, there wasn't education. It was just habituation. You could train a dog, you could train any animal, but training a human being does not work. You have to get deep. What is then the, the, the definition of chinuch? We find early on in the Torah, when Avram hears about his nephew Lot was taken captive, he heard that his brother, referring to his nephew, was taken captive. So he got together his chanichav, which the literal translation would be his trained ones. But really it means those who were mechunach, those who were, who were the recipient of Avraham's chinuch. Yelide Beso, those who were raised in his house, and they pursued and they eventually got back load. Rashi comes along and he tells us, what does that mean, chanichav? Loshen hascholas kenisa sa'adam okli le'umnes shu osid lamoba. Chinuch means hascholah. It's the, the commencement. Bringing either a person or a thing into the position that it's destined to be. Bringing a person into his or her mission. Getting them ready for their journey. 
Or when it comes to Chanukas HaMizbeach, or Chanukas HaBayis, now the house is built, and we're celebrating that hopefully this will be used for wonderful things in the future. So Avram was taking Chanichav, those who were the recipients of his Chinuch. What was he machanech? What did he do with them? He got them ready to fulfill their mission. So that's not about habituation. That's not about just training them externally to behave in certain ways. It's, it's getting things ready. It's cultivating. It's not molding. It's not creating. It's cultivating the soil, allowing it to thrive, to go on its mission or his or her mission. The Eish Kodesh takes this idea and elaborates. Source number 16, the Eish Kodesh writes, The goal is not merely that a child should listen to and obey his father while he's still a child under his father's jurisdiction. Education is not merely a matter of commanding the child or the student, do this or do that, nor is it a matter of habit. Education is a greater and more dynamic process than commands and habit. These two elements, commands and habit, are nothing more than tools that the educator must utilize in order to guide the child in Hashem's ways. They're tools to help the parent or the educator, but it does not define what our goal is, what chinuch is. When the word chinuch is used in the context of educating children, it means to nurture the inherent character and talents that lay dormant within the child. And this is a huge idea. And this should transform how we view parenting, teaching, any form of education. We're not here to superimpose. We're not here to place our ideas on them. We're here to find out who they are and to the best of our abilities, allow them to thrive in their talents. Only when we become... Only then will they become a devout servant to Hashem. Only then will they develop a yearning for Torah when it comes within. So the job of being machanech, a child or a student, is not posh. It's not easy. It's understanding who they are, trying to find those kochos, those talents, their personality that's laying dormant, and then tapping into it and helping them develop who they are, not creating robots, helping them become a human being. I remember growing up in LA, so I, I was close to, to many, many boys my age and somewhat older, and often I would have the same experience. We'd be friendly through yeah, high school-ish, and then they would go off to base medrash, and often I would find that when they came back, they were no longer quite themselves. And everyone seemed to be very similar. And it almost got this robotic feel. They, they weren't getting the, the, the nourishment to become, to maximize who they were. They were just trying to blend into a system, becoming more of a cookie-cutter thing, but not really becoming you. That's a massive problem. So how do we do chinuch well? It's only through understanding the child. The Chida writes, top of uh, page number six, he says, it requires a lot, of, a lot of wisdom that we have to think and analyze each child, who they are, 
and what they need. So that's the background. The two critical ingredients, and this I'm sure we've, we've heard a lot about, are love and respect. Now, the Torah's definition of love and the Torah's understanding of respect are somewhat different than what we find in the secular world. Love is a combination of attention and affection. Attention is, sounds pretty straightforward, very simple. Most parents don't do it or don't do it sufficiently. Attention means that I'm listening to you and I care about what you care about. Now, kids are not nearly as spaced out as we assume they are. When we're not really listening to them and they're excited about something that happened at school or they're distraught about the fact that, that he got the sticker with this one I'm left with over here, if we don't really care, they pick up on it quickly and eventually they stop telling us. They stop sharing with us. Because why, why waste my time? Why waste my energy? If dad doesn't care, so then I'll just share it with somebody else. So the first step of love is just realizing and noticing who they are, caring not just for them in the, you know, in the, the, the overall scope of life, but caring about what they care about. The, uh, the Mishnah in Avos tells us that we know real love is an Ava She'eno Teluya Bedover. It is totally independent. It's not based on what I'm getting. The Tiferes Yisrael explains that idea as follows. He says, Ava She'eno Teluya Bedover, it's not based on anything selfish, is the, the love that a parent has for a child. The proof that it's not based on anything is that if you were to ask the mother, or you were to ask the father, why do you love your kids so much? Why are you working so hard for them? Why are you waking up at 2 and 4 and 5 in the morning? It's crazy. The answer would be, I have no clue. <laughs> it really is kind of ridiculous. But that's what he says. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know how to answer that question. We could give reasons. Well, they're so cute. Or because I give so much to them, you know, that creates more of a love. And all these things are probably true. But the real source of the love, I can't even pinpoint it. It's just natural. That's an ava she'eno t'luya b'davar. That's an independent love. We all have that towards our children. However, we don't always feel it. And because we don't always really feel it, and maybe I'm speaking more for fathers than mothers, but I think it's true for mothers as well, because we don't always feel it, we can't always express it in a way that they could pick up on or relate to. We can't express it in an effective way. So what I want to do right now is a meditation. We'll do a meditation together. This uh, I found is extremely helpful in trying to, to tap into that infinite wellspring of love that we all have. It's natural. It's avash and b'davar. But when we're in the middle of a confrontation, we're, we're standing there asking for the 14th time, can you just please pick up all the scraps of paper you left on the floor that I told you before taking out the scissors, you're going to have to clean up. And you agreed, and now you're not doing anything about it. How do we tap into the love in those moments? And that's a trivial example. Close your eyes for a moment. All right? Picture 
any stressful scene that comes up on a daily basis with any one of, of your children. Picture yourself in the moment feeling the way you would normally feel. Well, I can't hit them. That would be wrong, right? You're holding yourself back from really losing it. Then you focus on seeing your kids. You focus on hearing them, even though they might be whining or complaining. You focus on understanding them. You try to actually absorb them within you. How do you do that? I give an example. If, if we, we picture ourselves lying, I don't want to say in our deathbed, but we're many, many years into the future, and all of our kids are grown, and we're looking back, we're thinking about some of the, the memories we have here and there, scattered throughout our minds, some of the stories that we, that we speak about. If you at that moment could go back 30 or 40 years, back into a situation where it's a challenge, it's a nisayon, you're really getting under my skin, but maybe I could react differently, maybe I could respond in a more loving way, maybe I could try to understand you, would you jump back into that situation? Would you go for it? Or would you feel, listen, been there, done that, I tried hard, I'm glad those years are over, let me, let me, let me continue onwards. That's the meditation. I'm not just trapped in the present, I'm pretending that I actually came back in time, and now I'm here with you, with this struggle, and I have a second chance. How do I want to respond? It gives me a whole different playing field, a whole different set of kochos, of, of abilities, to, to embrace the moment, and not, not just reject you, because you're not listening to me. That's tapping into Ava. Now the research shows this. The research shows that when little children develop attachment, this is the attachment theory that goes back decades, in their younger years in life, so they are much less likely to have major psychological issues later on in life. There was a massive study done, researchers in New Jersey looked at one-year-old boys, those who had strong attachments with their mothers and those who did not have strong attachments, 40% of the insecurely attached boys showed signs of mental illness later on in life, in contrast to only 6% of those boys who had a stronger attachment. Dr. Terry Levy, leave it to the Jews, she writes, children who experience consistent and considerable gratification of needs in the early stages do not become spoiled or dependent. To the contrary, they become more independent, self-assured, and confident. So there needs to be attention. I have to listen to what you're saying, and I have to care about what you're saying, and I have to, as much as possible, be here in the moment. I heard once from Dr. Pelkovitz, he shared an unbelievable study. He said that there was research done on, on brain surgeons throughout the world. Perhaps throughout the country it was. The, those who were in the top 1% of the field, that they have an amazing record, they work for the, the big hospitals, they're writing you know, different essays and articles, versus those who are in the very bottom, who have many people that died on the operating table, some eventually got fired or removed from their position. 
So they wanted to figure out what was the kernel? Was it IQ? Was it memory? Was it, was it hand mobility? What spells the difference between the amazing doctors and those who were subpar? And what they found was incredible. They found that those who excel in their field, whenever something went wrong, if God forbid they lost the patient, they didn't blame anybody else. Rather, they, they analyzed what happened. Why did I do this and not that? Why was I assuming it would turn out this way and not that way? And they got back to the books, and they spoke to their peers and their colleagues, and they thought about it. They took it seriously, and they took ownership of it. They were independent enough to take on the mistake and rectify it. Those who blame the hospital, or the nurses, or the staff, or the lighting, those are the ones who failed miserably. So the idea of having attachment when the child is young, paying attention to them and caring about what they care about, is in order to create children who could go as far and be as independent as possible and accept responsibility, not blame others for their, their mistakes. The last point here, in love, is affection. We have attention and we have affection. I've shared this with you before in a different context. We had a, a discussion on the power of touch. That Yaakov Avinu, before he was passing away, it was time to give a bracha to Ephraim and Menashe. So the Torah tells us that some a love, they brought the children close to him. And he kissed them and he hugged them. Why did he do that? more so than just the grandfather love that he had, the Svornu explains, he had to kiss them, and he had to hug them, in order that his neshama would be dovak, would be attached and connected to his grandchildren, to pass on the bracha. There's a whole science behind how one gives a bracha. We don't know much about that. But what's clear from the Svornu is that there needs to be a devekus hanefesh. There needs to be a soul connection. How do I create that? One very powerful way is kissing and hugging, being physical. Now it's clear also from the Svorno, it's not just for the benefit of the child, the recipient of the physical affection, but it's also for the benefit of the parent, or in this case, the grandparent. The more we're able to express love in a physical way, that is one of the most powerful forms of communication. They need it, and we need it. That's affection, that's showing love. Besides love, we also need respect. And usually respect is not something we speak about when it comes to parents towards their children. Isn't respect about how they have to treat us? Right? How they have to refer to me, and what they have to do for me. But to quote Dr. Seuss, a person's a person, no matter how small. The Chazanish once said that having kavod, having acceptance and respect for a child, is even more, criti more critical for their growth and development than loving the child. I have to respect you. It's interesting, when you see parents learning with children, one of the most amazing ways to bond. 
Some explain the, the, the Kesher, the beautiful relationship between David HaMelech and Yonasan. It came through learning Torah together. It was the Torah that created that Devekus HaNeshama. When you see a father learning with their child and they're arguing back and forth, and this is one of the few times the Shulchan Aruch tells us where a child's actually allowed to disagree with his father. And if his father says something, you shlug him up, tell him why he's wrong. You've got to be respectful, but don't just sit there and take it. Have a good milchama, a good healthy fight. When you're learning with a father, or even learning in a classroom, in that dynamic way, you're empowering a child. There's a back and forth over here. Of course I know more than you do, and hopefully you know that I know more than you do. But at the same time, we're having an argument, we're having a debate, we're having a discussion. That means that I care what you have to say. It's not a one-way street. And you say something often that I never thought of before. And you have a good kasha, you have a good question that I don't have an answer for. We're empowering children, we're showing them respect when we learn together with them. It's a back and forth. Yaakov Avinu, when he tells his sons, when he was making the treaty with Lavan, he turns to his boys, and the Pesach says, Yaakov He said to his brothers, let us gather stones to make this monument together. Why did he call his sons his brothers? They weren't his brothers. So Rashi says, he was calling them his brothers because they went through thick and thin together. They went through so much. Yaakov wanted them to know, of course you're my children, and of course you have to respect me, but I respect you, and we're in this together. We're Achim. Why did he call his sons brothers at this particular moment in his life? What was special about this experience? So explains when Natalit Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the great Amagdavar, he says, because he wanted them to, to, to join him, in making shalom with Lavan. It was such a hard thing to do, but it was such a crucial lesson. Although he's a swindler, and he's a cheater, and he's a liar, I want to make peace with him, and I want you to buy into this. And if I'm telling you as a father to a son, you'll obey me. But I don't want you to obey me. I want you to do this because you have an appreciation of what's being done. That's giving respect to a child. This, I think, is perhaps one of the most important points when it comes to love and respect of children. When they do something wrong, when they do something that we're very disappointed in, when they say something that we're shocked, I can't believe those words came out of her mouth, do they get the feeling that we're rejecting them as people? Or are they getting the feeling that I still love and respect you, but I'm very disappointed in what you just said. I'm taken aback as to how you were able to do that. It's like, again, they're very smart people. They're sensing what we're feeling. Am I feeling pretty much being mavatal? Just, ah, this, I can't believe it. Your whole mahus, your whole essence, I'm questioning. Or is it clear that I just don't like the behavior? Bilam, right, the only non-Jewish prophet of all time, in his famous prophecy, he says, Lo hibid oven that Hashem doesn't see any sin within Yaakov, 
nor does he see any flaw within Klal Yisrael. Why? Because Hashem is with Klal Yisrael. The friendship of the king is strong. There's a friendship here. Hashem doesn't see any of our sins. He doesn't pay attention to that kind of thing. And that's a very, very strange thing to say. That flies in the face of how we view life. The Gemara says, Kol ha'omra kadosh baruch vatran, anyone who, who dares to say that Hashem doesn't care about our sins or mistakes, yavatru ma'ohi, he should be thrown out. We believe that God is just. And of course God pays attention and loves all of our mitzvos, but God also pays attention to the averos. What Bilam's saying here through this nevuah sounds like it's heresy. God doesn't care about those things. There's so much friendship here. He doesn't see the sin. What does that mean? So the Orachayim comes along and he says, of course Hashem cares about our actions. And of course there's a cheshbin. Everything is, is part of, of, of an overall calculation. What it means is, When Hashem's looking at me, or when Hashem's looking at you, or all of Klal Yisrael, there's nothing within me that's evil. There's nothing within me that's bad. There's no mum kavua, there's no lasting blemish. He does see shmutz. Right? Sometimes we're very dirty. We're maluchlach, we're dirtied with our avonos, with our mistakes and our, and our hashkafa. But Hashem will always look at me as a person and see nothing wrong. Just the neshama tahora. Taking Hashem's perspective of us and trying to hopefully see ourselves and our children and our students in the same way. No matter what you say, no matter how you listen, no matter how you misbehave, you're not obeying me at all, but I see nothing wrong in you. I see what you're doing is not okay. That's a very subtle message, but that spells the difference between a child having no relationship and no connection with you as he or she gets older, versus still having a shaykh, still having a connection, although I know you don't approve of something I'm doing. There's this amazing classroom study done by Rosenthal and Jacobson. Can you guess whether or not they were Jewish? Going back to 1965. And what they did is they went to a particular school, a random public school, and they went to 18 classrooms in that school, and they chose 20% of students in each classroom, and they told the teachers randomly, these, these five kids, these seven kids, they went through a lot of testing, and they are off the charts brilliant. They have potential. It hasn't been picked up on yet, but we're assuming this year they are going to soar academically. They came back a year later, and the results were astounding. The results were the kids who the teachers thought were gifted, although they weren't any more special or talented or had any more of an IQ than the other kids in the class, they did better. How does that happen? These researchers, I guess they're Rosenthal and Jacobson, they were Nevi'im, they were prophets of some sort. When you tell the teacher that he or she has amazing potential, they're going to treat them slightly differently. They're going to call on them more. 
And when they say something, even if it sounds kind of silly, I assume I'm missing something. It's not, it's not you, it's me. You're gifted. I'm just a regular teacher. So because they had that perspective, and that came out in all of the interactions with those students, those students were able to thrive and maximize their potential more so than everyone else because you believed in me. Because even if I do something wrong, you're not looking at me as a bad person. It's not within me. I can make a mistake. I can say something wrong. But there's always a love and there's always an acceptance. I want to end with the Eish Kodesh. The Eish Kodesh says as follows. Each and every parent and teacher knows that the small children and young students who stand before them today will not remain small and young forever. They will grow up to be adults. And they may even achieve greatness in Torah and Avodas Hashem. Despite this obvious fact, there are those whose goals focus only on what appears before them now in the present. What should the perspective be when I'm speaking to a child, no matter what age? Says the Eish Kodesh, parents and teachers have to be aware that their mission is to discover and nurture children of Hashem and Gedol Yisrael. Again, being machanech does not mean training. Training is helpful when it comes to mastering skills. When you're trying to learn how to read, you need training along the way, but that's not chinuch. Chinuch is finding out who you are, where your talents lie, and helping you develop yourself. That's the goal of chinuch. They must view their children and students as great neshamos that are still immature, and themselves as responsible for helping them to flourish and grow. We are the gardeners of these little saplings. We're the gardeners. It's our responsibility. And he says, if you see a child who's particularly stubborn, don't look at him right now. Don't have that image where, oh my gosh, this kid is just like, he can't listen to anything I say. Think of the neshama, think of the gavura, think of the commitment this kid is able of had to have when he gets older, if he's only shown the right derech. If you have a child who has a bad temper, what does a bad temper come from? Where is, what's the source of kas? It's aish, it's fire. This kid has passion. See the neshama gedola. They are gedoli Yisrael sitting in front of you, and it's our responsibility as parents, as educators, or random adults who are interacting with kids, try to help them maximize who they are. So to summarize briefly, the goal is not just to contain, we have to have a long-term vision, me'irim olam b'torah masim tovim. Now, obviously, there are many things we did not discuss, many of the technicalities of it, but some of the guiding principles. Our motivation is not what they could do for us in this world or even the next world. The motivation is, lasos ritzon, to do, do, do ritzon Hashem. Hashem gave me the job to be a parent. I have to do my best. And regardless of how my children turn out, that doesn't mean I'm a good or bad person. I have to do my hishtandlus. That's the goal. The way we go about it is through being mechanech, not just training, and the main ingredients are the ava, the love, and the kava, the respect. Love is paying attention, caring about them, and caring about what they care about, and they know when I'm faking. Part of that is also affection, expressing it verbally and physically. 
The other aspect is kava, like the Chazanish told us, more important than love is respect. Show them that we care about what they say. And they might bring something to the table that I never thought of before. Have a back and forth with them. We have ava, we have kavod. We have to view them not in the present, but in the future. We're the gardeners. It's our responsibility. We should have siyata deshmaya and divine guidance as we go along this journey. A good Shabbos.